Chapter One, Part One, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume One, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One, Part One, from England to South Africa. Take a bowsy short leave of your nymphs on the shore, and silence their mourning with vows of returning, though never intending to visit them more. Dido and Aeneas. Scott used to say that the worst part of an expedition was over when the preparation was finished. So no doubt it was with a sigh of relief that he saw the Terra Nova out from Cardiff into the Atlantic on June 15, 1910. Cardiff had given the expedition a most generous and enthusiastic send-off, and Scott announced that it should be his first port on returning to England. Just three years more, and the Terra Nova, worked back from New Zealand by Pennell, reached Cardiff again on June 14, 1913, and paid off there. From the first everything was informal and most pleasant, and those who had the good fortune to help in working the ship out to New Zealand, under steam or sail, must, in spite of five months of considerable discomfort and very hard work, look back upon the voyage as one of the very happiest times of the expedition. To some of us, perhaps, the voyage out, the three weeks in the pack ice going south, and the Robinson Crusoe life at Hut Point, are the pleasantest of many happy memories. Scott made a great point, that so far as was possible the personnel of the expedition must go out with the Terra Nova. Possibly he gave instructions that they were to be worked hard, and no doubt it was a good opportunity of testing our metal. We had been chosen out of eight thousand volunteers, executive officers, scientific staff, crew, and all. We differed entirely from the crew of an ordinary merchant ship, both in our personnel and in our methods of working. The executive officers were drawn from the Navy, as were also the crew. In addition, there was the scientific staff, including one doctor who was not a naval surgeon, but who was also a scientist, and two others called by Scott adaptable helpers, namely Oates and myself. The scientific staff of the expedition numbered twelve members all told, but only six were on board. The remainder were to join the ship at Littleton, New Zealand, when we made our final embarkation for the south. Of those on the ship, Wilson was chief of the scientific staff, and united in himself the various functions of vertebral zoologist, doctor, artist, and, as this book will soon show, the unfailing friend in need of all on board. Lieutenant Evans was in command, with Campbell as first officer. Watches were, of course, assigned immediately to the executive officers. The crew was divided into a port and starboard watch, and the ordinary routine of a sailing ship, with auxiliary steam, was followed. Beyond this no work was definitely assigned to any individual on board. How the custom of the ship arose I do not know, but in effect most things were done by volunteer labour. It was recognised that every one whose work allowed turned to immediately on any job which was wanted, but it was an absolutely voluntary duty. Volunteers to shorten sail? To coal? to shift cargo, to pump, to paint or wash down paintwork. They were constant calls, some of them almost hourly calls, day and night, and there was never any failure to respond fully. This applied not only to the scientific staff, but also, whenever their regular duties allowed, to the executive officers. There wasn't an officer on the ship who did not shift coal till he was sick of the sight of it, but I heard no complaints. Such a system soon singles out the real willing workers, but it is apt to put an undue strain upon them. Meanwhile, most of the executive officers, as well as the scientific staff, had their own work to do, which they were left to fit in as most convenient. 
The first days out from England were spent in such hard and crowded work that we shook down very quickly. I then noticed, for the first time, Wilson's great gift of tact, and how quick he was to see the small things which make so much difference. At the same time his passion for work set a high standard. Pennell was another glutton. We dropped anchor in Funchal Harbour, Madeira, about 4pm on June 23rd, eight days out. The ship had already been running under sail and steam. The decks were as clear as possible. There was some paintwork to show, and with a good harbour stow she looked thoroughly workmanlike and neat. Some scientific work, in particular tow-netting and magnetic observations, had already been done. But even as early as this we had spent hours on the pumps, and it was evident that these pumps were going to be a constant nightmare. In Madeira, as everywhere, we were given freely of such things as we required. We left in the early morning of June 26, after Pennell had done some hours' magnetic work with the Lloyd Creek and Barrow Dip Circle. On June 29th, noon position, latitude 27 degrees 10 minutes north, longitude 20 degrees 21 minutes west, it was possible to write, A fortnight out today, and from the general appearance of the wardroom, we might have been out a year. We were to a great extent strangers to one another when we left England, but officers and crew settled down to their jobs quickly, and when men live as close as we did, they settle down or quarrel before very long. Let us walk into the cabins which surround the small wardroom aft. The first on the left is that of Scott and Lieutenant Evans, but Scott is not on board, and Wilson has taken his place. In the next cabin to them is Drake, the secretary. On the starboard side of the screw are Oates, Atkinson and Levick, the two latter being doctors, and on the port side Campbell and Pennell, who is navigator. Then Rennick and Bowers, the latter just home from the Persian Gulf. Both of these are watchkeepers. In the next cabin are Simpson, meteorologist, back from Simla, with Nelson and Lilly, marine biologists. In the last cabin, the nursery, are the youngest, and necessarily the best behaved of this community. Wright, the physicist and chemist, Gran, the Norwegian ski expert, and myself, Wilson's helper and assistant zoologist. It is difficult to put a man down as performing any special job, where each did so many, but that is roughly what we were. Certain men already began to stand out, Wilson with an apparently inexhaustible stock of knowledge on little things and big, always ready to give help, and always ready with sympathy and insight, a tremendous worker, and as unselfish as possible, a universal adviser. Pennell, as happy as the day was long, working out sights, taking his watch on the bridge, or if not on watch, full of energy aloft, trimming coal, or any other job that came along, withal spending hours a day on magnetic work, which he did as a hobby, and not in any way as his job. Bowers was proving himself the best seaman on board, with an exact knowledge of the whereabouts and contents of every case, box and bale, and with a supreme contempt for heat or cold. Simpson was obviously a first-class scientist, devoted to his work, in which Wright gave him very great and unselfish help, while at the same time doing much of the ship's work. Oates and Atkinson generally worked together in a solid, dependable and somewhat humorous way. Evans, who will always be called Lieutenant Evans in this book to distinguish him from Seaman Evans, was in charge of the ship, and did much to cement together the rough material into a nucleus which was capable of standing without any friction the strains of nearly three years of crowded, isolated and difficult life, ably seconded by Victor Campbell, first officer, commonly called the mate, 
in whose hands the routine and discipline of the ship was most efficiently maintained. I was very frightened of Campbell. Scott himself was unable to travel all the way out to New Zealand in the Terra Nova, owing to the business affairs of the expedition, but he joined the ship from Simons Bay to Melbourne. The voyage itself on the sailing track from Madeira to the Cape was at first uneventful. We soon got into hot weather, and at night every available bit of deck space was used on which to sleep. The more particular slung hammocks, but generally men used such deck space as they could find, such as the top of the ice-house, where they were free from the running tackle, and rolled themselves into their blankets. So long as we had a wind we ran under sail alone, and on those days men would bathe over the side in the morning. But when the engines were going we could get the hose in the morning, which was preferred, especially after a shark was seen making for Bower's bread breast as he swam. The scene on deck in the early morning was always interesting. All hands were roused before six and turned on to the pumps, for the ship was leaking considerably. Normally the well showed about ten inches of water when the ship was dry. Before pumping the sinker would show anything over two feet. The ship was generally dry after an hour to an hour and a half's pumping, and by that time we had had quite enough of it. As soon as the officer of the watch had given the order, "'Fast pumping!' the first thing to do was to strip, and the deck was dotted with men trying to get the maximum amount of water from the sea in a small bucket let down on a line from the moving ship. First efforts in this direction would have been amusing, had it not been for the caustic eye of the mate on the bridge. If the reader ever gets the chance to try the experiment, especially in a swell, he will soon find himself with neither bucket nor water. The poor mate was annoyed by the loss of his buckets. Everybody was working very hard during these days, shifting coal, reefing and furling sail aloft, hauling on the ropes on deck, together with magnetic and meteorological observations, tow-netting, collecting and making skins, and so forth. During the first weeks there was more cargo stowing and paintwork than at other times, otherwise the work ran in very much the same lines all the way out. A period of nearly five months. On July 1st we were overhauled by the only ship we ever saw, so far as I can remember, during all that time, the Inverclyde, a bark out from Glasgow to Buenos Aires. It was an oily, calm day, with the sea like glass, and she looked, as Wilson quoted, like a painted ship upon a painted ocean, as she lay with all sail set. We picked up the northeast trade two days later, being then north of the Cape Verde Islands, latitude 22 degrees 28 minutes north, longitude 23 degrees 5 minutes west, at noon. It was a Sunday, and there was a general make and mend throughout the ship, the first since we sailed. During the day we ran from deep clear blue water into a darkish and thick green sea. This remarkable change of colour which was observed by the Discovery Expedition in much the same place was supposed to be due to a large mass of pelagic fauna called plankton. The plankton which drifts upon the surface of the sea is distinct from the necton which swims submerged. The Terra Nova was fitted with tow-nets with very fine meshes for collecting these inhabitants of the open sea together with the algae, or minute plant organisms, which afford them an abundant food supply. The plankton nets can be lowered when the ship is running at full speed, and a great many such hauls were made during the expedition. July 5th had an unpleasant surprise in store. At 10.30am the ship's bell rang, and there was a sudden cry of fire quarters. Two Minimax fire extinguishers finished the fire, which was in the lazarette, and was caused by a lighted lamp, which was upset by the roll of the ship. The result was a good deal of smoke, a certain amount of water below, and some singed paper. 
but we realised that a fire on such an old wooden ship would be a very serious matter, and greater care was taken after this. Such a voyage shows nature in her most attractive form, and always there was a man close by, whose special knowledge was in the whales, porpoises, dolphins, fish, birds, parasites, plankton, radium, and other things which we watched through microscopes or field-glasses. Nelson caught a Portuguese man-of-war, Arethusa, as it sailed past us close under the counter. These animals are common, but few can realise how beautiful they are until they see them, fresh-coloured from the deep sea, floating and sailing in a big glass bowl. It vainly tried to sail out, and vigorously tried to sting all who touched it. Wilson painted it. From first to last, the study of life of all kinds was of absorbing interest to all on board, and when we landed in the Antarctic, as well as on the ship, everybody worked and was genuinely interested in all that lived, and had its being on the fringe of that great sterile continent. Not only did officers, who had no direct interest in anything but their own particular work or scientific subject, spend a large part of their time in helping, making notes and keeping observations, but the seamen also had a large share in the specimens and data of all descriptions which have been brought back. Several of them became good pupils for skinning birds. Meanwhile, perhaps the constant cries of whale, whale, or new bird, or dolphins, sometimes found the biologist concerned less eager to leave his meal than the observers were to call him forth. Good opportunities of studying the life of seabirds, whales, dolphins, and other forms of life in the sea, even those comparatively few forms which are visible from the surface, are not too common. A modern liner moves so quickly that it does not attract life to it, in the same way as a slow-moving ship like the Terranova, and when specimens are seen they are gone almost as soon as they are observed. Those who would wish to study sea life, and there is much to be done in this field, should travel by tramp steamers, or better still, sailing vessels. Dolphins were constantly playing under the bows of the ship, giving a very good chance for identification, and whales were also frequently sighted, and would sometimes follow the ship, as did also hundreds of seabirds, petrels, shearwaters, and albatross. It says much for the interest and keenness of the officers on board that a complete hourly log was kept from beginning to end of the numbers of species which were seen, generally with the most complete notes as to any peculiarity or habit which was noticed. It is to be hoped that full use will be made, by those in charge of the working out of these results, of these logs, which were kept so thoroughly, and sometimes under such difficult circumstances and conditions of weather and sea. Though many helped, this log was largely the work of Pennell, who was an untiring and exact observer. We lost the northeast trade about July 7th, and ran into the doldrums. On the whole we could not complain of the weather. We never had a gale or big sea until after leaving South Trinidad, and though an old ship with no modern ventilation is bound to be stuffy in the tropics, we lived and slept on deck so long as it was not raining. If it rained at night, as it frequently does in this part of the world, a number of rolled-up forms could be heard discussing as to whether it was best to stick it above, or face the heat below and, if the rain persisted, sleepy and somewhat snappy individuals were to be seen trying to force themselves and a maximum amount of damp bedding down the wardroom gangway. At the same time, a thick wooden ship will keep fairly cool in the not-severe heat through which we passed. One want which was unavoidable was the lack of fresh water. There was none to wash in, though a glass of water was allowed for shaving. With an unlimited amount of sea-water this may not seem much of a hardship, 
nor is it unless you have very dirty work to do, but inasmuch as some of the officers were coaling almost daily, they found that any amount of cold seawater, even with a euphemistically named seawater soap, had no very great effect in removing the coal dust. The alternative was to make friends with the engine-room authorities and draw some water from the boilers. Perhaps, therefore, it was not with purely disinterested motives that some of us undertook to do the stoking during the morning watch, and also later in the day during our passage through the tropics, since the engine-room staff was reduced by sickness. A very short time will convince anybody that the ease in which men accustomed to this work get through their watch is mainly due to custom and method. The ship had no forced draught, nor modern ventilating apparatus. Four hours in the boiling, fiery furnace which the Terra Nova's stokehold formed in the tropics, unless there was a good wind to blow down the one canvas shaft, was a real test of staying power, and the actual shovelling of the coal into the furnaces, one after the other, was as child's play to handling the devil, as the weighty instrument used for breaking up the clinker and shaping the fire was called. The boilers were cylindrical marine or return tube boilers, the furnaces being six feet long by three feet wide, slightly lower at the back than at the front. The fire on the bars was kept wedge-shaped, that is, some nine inches high at the back, tapering to about six inches in front against the furnace doors. The furnaces were corrugated for strength. We were supposed to keep the pressure on the gauge between seventy and eighty, but it wanted some doing. For the most part it was done. We did, however, get uncomfortable days, with the rain sluicing down, and a high temperature, everything wet on deck and below. But it had its advantages in the fresh water it produced. Every bucket was on duty, and the ship's company stripped naked, and ran about the decks or sat in the stream between the laboratories on wardroom skylight, and washed their very dirty clothes. The stream came through into our bunks, and no amount of corking ever stopped it. To sleep, with a constant drip of water falling upon you, is a real trial. These hot, wet days were more trying to the nerves than the months of wet, rough, but cooler weather to come, and it says much for the good spirit which prevailed that there was no friction, though we were crowded together like sardines in a tin. July 12th was a typical day. Latitude 4 degrees 57 minutes north, longitude 22 degrees 4 minutes west. A very hot, rainy night, followed by a squall, which struck us while we were having breakfast. So we went up and set all sail, which took until about 9.30 a.m. We then sat in the water on the deck and washed clothes until just before midday, when the wind dropped, though the rain continued. So we went up and furled all sail, a tedious business when the sails are wet and heavy. Then work on cargo or coal, till 7 p.m., supper, and glad to get to sleep. On July 15th, latitude 0 degrees 40 minutes north, longitude 21 degrees 56 minutes west, we crossed the line with all pomp and ceremony. At 1.15 p.m., Neptune, in the person of Seaman Evans, hailed and stopped the ship. He came on board with his motley company, who solemnly paced aft to the break of the poop, where he was met by Lieutenant Evans, his wife, Browning, a doctor, Patton, Barber, Cheatham, two policemen and four bears, of whom Atkinson and Oates were two, grouped themselves around him while the barrister, Abbott, read an address to the captain, and the procession moved round to the bath, a sail full of water slung in the break of the poop on the starboard side. Nelson was the first victim. He was examined, then overhauled by the doctor, given a pill and a dose, and handed over to the barber, who lathered him with a black mixture, consisting of soot, flour, and water, was shaved by Cheetham with a great wooden razor, 
and then the policeman tipped him backwards into the bath where the bears were waiting. As he was being pushed in, he seized the barber and took him with him. Wright, Lily, Simpson and Levick followed, with about six of the crew. Finally, Gran, the Norwegian, was caught as an extra, never having been across the line in a British ship. But he threw the pill-distributing doctor over his head into the bath, after which he was lathered very gingerly, and Cheetham, having been in once, refused to shave him at all, so they tipped him in, and wished that they had never caught him. The procession reformed, and Neptune presented certificates to those who had been initiated. The proceedings closed with a sing-song in the evening. These sing-songs were of very frequent occurrence. The expedition was very fond of singing, though there was hardly anybody in it who could sing. The usual custom at this time was that every one had to contribute a song in turn, all round the table, after supper. If he could not sing, he had to compose a limerick. If he could not compose a limerick, he had to contribute a fine towards the wine fund, which was to make some much-discussed purchases when we reached Cape Town. At other times we played the most childish games. There was one called The Priest of the Parish Has Lost His Cap, over which we laughed till we cried, and much money was added to the wine fund. As always happens, certain songs become conspicuous for a time. One of these I am sure that Campbell, who was always at work and upon whom the routine of the ship depended, will never forget. I do not know who it was that started singing, Everybody works but father, that poor old man. But Campbell, who was the only father on board, and whose hair was popularly supposed to be getting thin on the top of his head, may remember. We began to make preparations for a run ashore, a real adventure on an uninhabited and unknown island. The sailing track of ships from England round the Cape of Good Hope lies out towards the coast of Brazil, and not far from the mysterious island of South Trinidad, 680 miles east of Brazil, in 20 degrees 30 minutes south and 29 degrees 30 minutes west. This island is difficult to access, owing to its steep rocky coast and the big Atlantic swell which seldom ceases. It has therefore been little visited, and as it is infested with land crabs, the stay of the few parties which have been there has been short. But scientifically it is of interest not only for the number of new species which may be obtained there, but also for the extraordinary attitude of wild seabirds towards human beings whom they have never learnt to fear. Before we left England, it had been decided to attempt a landing and spend a day there, if we should pass sufficiently near to it. Those who have visited it in the past include the astronomer Halley, who occupied it in 1700, Sir James Ross, outward bound for the Antarctic in 1839, spent a day there, landing in a small cove a short distance to the northward of the nine-pin rock of Halley, the surf on all the other parts being too great to admit of it, without hazarding the destruction of our boats. Ross also writes that Horsborough mentions that the island abounds with wild pig and goats. One of the latter was seen, with a view to add somewhat to the stock of useful creatures. A cock and two hens were put on shore. They seemed to enjoy the change, and I have no doubt, in so unfrequented a situation, and so delightful a climate, will quickly increase in numbers. I am afraid we did not find any of their descendants, nor those of the pig and goats. I doubt whether fowls would survive the land-crabs very long. There are many wild birds on the island, however, which may feed the shipwrecked, and also a depot left by the government for that purpose. Another visitor was Knight, who wrote a book called The Cruise of the Falcon, concerning his efforts to discover the treasure which is said to have been left there. Scott also visited it in the Discovery, in 1901, when a new petrel was found, which was afterwards called Estrelata Wilsonii, 
after the same Uncle Bill, who was zoologist of both Scott's expeditions. And so it came about that on the evening of July 25th we filled sail and lay five miles from South Trinidad, with all our preparations made for a very thorough search of this island of treasure. Everything was to be captured, alive or dead, animal, vegetable or mineral. End of chapter 1, part 1